Let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 53. This is the th- our third Sunday as we are working our way through this chapter. Uh, it's part of our process as a, as a congregation of moving uh, toward Easter in a very intentional way. Uh, it's been a part of Lent for us that in a lot of ways has been paralleled with our community group content, looking at uh, the denial of self and uh, I think there's been a lot of, of overlap and uh, probably a lot of intertwining that's happened uh, as God kind of takes us as a congregation and um, like he just does stuff like that on purpose. And um, there are times when people, you know, people will say like, uh, like hey, I really appreciate like, how, how the sermons and the community group material like overlap a whole lot, you know, and uh, I have to be very honest and say it's really not as purposed as maybe you might think it is. Uh, God just kind of does that at times and uh, whatever, so I can't really take credit. But um, yeah, so uh, so that's kind of been what's happening, and God's I think very purposed in having us uh, in this chapter. And so um, we're going to start just reading at the beginning of fifty three. I'm I'm not going to recap where we've been. Uh, and the things that we've covered, uh, you'll just need to go listen to the podcast for those things if you've missed a little bit. Uh, if I start recapping, we'll never leave. So, uh, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit. In his mouth. So seven, eight, and nine. That's where we're going to focus tonight. Um, and so the the he in this chapter is Jesus. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. Uh, this is a prophecy that's talking about the Messiah that is to come. Uh, there are several things in this chapter that are used to confirm that Jesus is the Messiah. And so there's a little bit, when you're talking about prophecy in the Bible, there's a little bit of um, like telling what's going to happen one day that goes on. It's, it's not 
100% that all the time. Uh, but there is a, an element of that in much of the writings of people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, where there are things when they'll say, this is going to happen, and then when it happens later on, it's confirmation that God is in this. And uh, those things are, are very useful to us. They've helped for uh, hundreds of years in us uh, solidifying the fact that we believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the, the Redeemer, the Rescuer of, of all of humanity. Um, these are very important things that we see in, in the chapter. And so we've been going slowly, kind of three verses at a time, uh, just trying to soak up the, all that uh, God wants to say to us uh, here in this chapter. So um, I don't, this isn't a sermon where there's like, um, it's not quite as organized as, as maybe I have tried to be over the last few years. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more like, let's look at verse 7, and let's just pull everything we can out of verse 7. And let's look at verse 8 and kind of do the same thing. So to my note-taking friends, I'm sorry I will not be... Uh, very neat on the page, but uh, hopefully it'll, it'll make sense. Let's look at verse 7. He, okay, so every time it, we're talking about he, we're talking about Jesus. Uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Okay, so in the beginning of the verse, it's, it talks about him being oppressed and afflicted, and we're going to come back to that a little bit. Um, but the rest of the verse really focuses on the fact that, that Jesus, uh, as he was uh, being handed over, as he was arrested and tried and then convicted and then flogged and then had to march through the city carrying the crossbar uh, to uh, to the, the place of crucifixion and all that, that um, he, would, he was quiet through there. That he didn't ob- object. And there's something to that. There's something significant to the fact that, that he wasn't uh, broadcasting his innocence to this. You know? That he wasn't the whole time saying, well, it's not my fault, and I didn't deserve this, but I'll, I'll take it. You know, that's fine. He wasn't preaching the whole time. He wasn't uh, looking people in the eye and be like, you did this to me. You know, he's not doing that. He's not, there's no objection. There's no whatever. He's just quiet. And he took it, and he owned up to it. And I think some of the significance for us is that here, here is, is Christ owning his role in the carrying out of the will of the Father. He's, by being quiet and not objecting and, and not doing any, all, the, all the things that he could be doing, by his silence we see him willingly playing the role that the Father sent him to play and that he agreed to in coming to the earth. He's in agreement. He's on board with things. He tells us in John's Gospel that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. That here he is owning up to our sin. He's willingly stepping in as a substitute. And I was thinking about it, you know, when it says, uh, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. I was like, why, what's significant about that? Why, why those things? And uh, certainly some of, it, some of it is like through 
that kind of description in a very agricultural community, they could understand those things. But to, to a person who's listening to that, uh, I think some of the connection is like, well, that's what, that's what sheep are for. You know, like that's, that's the role that they play is they are sheared for their wool or they're slaughtered for meat uh, to feed people and that kind of stuff. Like that's just what they do. And so Jesus was just doing what he came here to do. So why object when you're being obedient? Why object when what you're doing is out of love for those around you? He was willing, and so he just quiet. Probably a lot of processing going on in the moment. You know, it's probably a very deep time for him. It's probably very difficult um, on every possible level. You know, the night before he was arrested, he had been praying and he's sweating blood. I mean, just that kind of uh, anxiety building up. I mean, he he prays to the Father and essentially says, "If there's if there's another way, let's do that." But it's not about what I want, it's about what you want. He's starting to feel the isolation and the loneliness. His closest disciples couldn't even like, stay up and pray with him. They were falling asleep. and Everything just began to just build. And So here he is, willingly playing the role he's supposed to play. So why, why object? Why fire back at people? He said, no, I'm going I'm to own this moment. I'm going to own this process. I'm going to own... What's coming to me? Uh, it also says to us, I believe, that Jesus is not afraid of your worst. You know, he's not afraid of my worst. He's not afraid of uh, just the parts of life we're ashamed of. You know, the things we've done that we uh, we hope nobody ever finds out about. The things that if we had some do-overs, you know, be on our list, those kinds of things. That the, the worst we have to bring to the table, Jesus wasn't scared of that. And so we have, to, we have to, like, drag that into our lives a little bit. We have to let that apply, let that sink in. And Jesus isn't scared of your sin. You know, he's not like, oh, the things on this list, oh, let's do that. But these, oh, no, not these. That he didn't object. He didn't say, let's save all these people, except, I'm not sure about this one, though, because, yikes. No, he's not scared of what you bring to the table. He's not scared of the things you've done in your past, or the things that have happened today, or the things that are going to happen in the future. He didn't scream out an objection to the worst things that you have to offer. They were placed on him. They were transferred to him as our substitute, which we talked about last week. It was put onto him, and he didn't object. He didn't buck. He didn't refuse. He didn't whine. He didn't complain. He was just silent. So, you want to make sin something that you hate more? You know? Something we've talked about lately. It's all right. Something we've talked about lately is sin being something that we really, like, sometimes it's kind of annoying, 
you know, kind of a nuisance. Maybe not necessarily the kind of thing that, that, that we hate. Some of those patterns that we're caught up in, those habitual things, you know, the stuff that maybe has like just seemingly like, like stalked you and haunted you for years. Maybe, maybe you've given in to those temptations for so long and so long and so long and so long and so long that you've become callous to it, to where it doesn't even bother you anymore. You don't really think twice about it anymore. And so a couple of weeks ago, I, I talked about, uh, you know, compared it to like calluses with a guitar player and, and how our hearts kind of and minds kind of get that way with sin and and so when we fast from those things, when a guitar player stops playing guitar for a while, those calluses go away. And um, So there's a challenge that was issued uh, by me to, uh, to fast from those, like to fast from something, from something sinful, okay? So a lot of people during Lent, you know, you fast from uh, whatever, coffee or uh, TV or different things that you give up for Lent, but, but I... I kind of took it a little bit further and said, let's, let's find one of those things that we're very callous to, those habitual sinful patterns that, we're, um, that we've really grown hardened toward. And let's just begin to fast from it. Let's stop playing guitar for a while with that. Let's let those calluses go away and see what God wants to do. And let's start acknowledging the fact that maybe we don't hate sin you know, maybe maybe we don't grieve over it like we should. Maybe maybe we we're so driven and we're such a grace driven community, which is awesome. That maybe some of the recoil on that is that we're we kind of just don't think it's that big a deal. Well, if if that's something God's been stirring in you, and 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 you really have a desire to to weep over sin, you know, not just shrug it off but to really be broken and grieve over that. And take a verse like this and make it personal and recognize that Jesus owned that sin for you. That He died for those things. He died for you in those ways. That He's already covered those things. And that when placed upon him, he didn't cry out, and he didn't object, and he didn't whatever. He was silent. He owned it for you. He willingly took that for you. And let's drag that into our lives. Let's begin to apply that, to recognize what happened. Because far too often, we're, we're like the people in verse 8. Look at, look at verse 8, what it says. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So that verse tells us that the people of his day were oppressing him. Verse 7 says that he was afflicted. Uh, So we see oppression, affliction, uh, and they were judging him. And that they didn't consider, they didn't realize, they didn't, they didn't see the, the big picture that the reason he was like, cut off from the land of the living is, another, is a poetic way of saying he died. That he died for their sins. Like they, didn't, they didn't connect those dots. You know? They didn't connect his death with their sin. 
And he was surrounded by people who were just oppressing him and judging him. There, there was a rejection that it talks about in the first couple of verses. That he was despised, that they hid their faces from him. You know, saying that there, there wasn't anything about Jesus that, in an earthly sense, made you want to follow him, you know. People didn't follow him because he was, like, super handsome, you know. They didn't follow him because he was like, oh, there's something very, like, charismatic about him or, or whatever. When you started to listen to what he was saying, um, he, he got, like, into, like, real-life issues. And then when you started to hear, he's like, wait a minute. This dude is saying that, like, the, my money's not my money. This guy is saying that life is not about me. This guy is saying that in order to be his disciple, to become like him, I have to deny myself. No. So they began to despise him and reject him and hide their faces from him. One pastor said that Jesus refused to endorse their rebellion. So in self-preservation, they rejected him. So he's surrounded by all these people. Even his own disciples didn't know what to do in, in these moments. They were unable to connect the dots between his death and their sin. And I think... For those of us who struggle to grieve over our sin, it's because we are, we're kind of like that. We aren't connecting those two things together. We look at the death of Christ and, and we see it as an act of love, absolutely, and we sing about it and we rejoice in it because we know the, the whole part of the story, but we don't like to talk about the role that we played in that all happening. And that's kind of, it's been a little thematic for us over the last few weeks. It's recognizing that, like, oh, it was, it was my sin that held him there. It was my uh, self-reliance. It was my rebellion. It was me turning to my own way. It was me saying, I know better than him. It was the fact that he refused to endorse my rebellion, and so I reject him. That's why that happened. And so here's a verse that's talking about that generation and then uh, here's a bunch of us kind of struggling with the same thing. You know, it's so easy for us to say, like, how could they not see the beauty of Christ? It's easy to point the finger at them and say, oh, they were so silly. How could they miss it? But yet, for those of us who are believers, we don't really want to connect those two things that we kind of judge them for not being able to connect. So, if we want to really grieve over sin and be broken over that and learn to walk in holiness, we have to connect those things together. For his generation, they, were, they did not consider that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for their transgressions. And for us, we have, we have to see that that's why he died. Because I was born insisting on my own way. And even now that I know Christ and am freed from that, I still turn to my own way sometimes. I still struggle with that. And so sin from before I knew Christ and sin after I knew Christ, all of it put on him. He, he died for that. So it was my actions that put him there. So maybe making that personal for us is a part of learning to grieve it. Maybe a part of us learning to pray through those things and wrestle through our battles with, with, uh, with maturing and with 
seeing sin correctly and with pursuing holiness, maybe a part of it needs to be the acknowledgement that our actions sent Jesus to the cross. I mean, he willingly did it, right? He laid his life down, but we were part of a scenario that he rescued us from. So the wages of sin is death. Jesus comes in as our substitute and pays that price. They didn't really see it. A lot of times we don't see it either. And that's what we're asking him to correct in us. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. All right, so this, the part of this verse, this is, uh, these are prophetic details that would come true, right? He made his grave with the wicked, meaning like what that's pointing to is that he wasn't crucified alone. He was crucified with two other criminals uh, at, at that time. And so he was uh, made his grave with the wicked is another way of saying he was killed with other wicked people. Um, and then the rich man, uh, where am I? There we go. And, and with the rich man in his death, uh, you may recall that, that after Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man, asked for the body and uh, buried Jesus in a tomb that he actually owned. And so here are these two details that come true all this time later that we're able to point back to and, and see those things happening. It's cool because it's like God knew that we would need, we would need details like that. And there are a lot of prophecies that, that point toward uh, events and details and the way that things happened uh, that are proving to us that, that God has orchestrated this whole thing. It's like he knew we were going to need more, more, than, more than, you know, whatever. So uh, that's what he provides. Um, but if you look at the next part of the verse, Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, so he was killed with wicked people and with the rich man. Okay, so that all happened. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Done no violence. That means that there were no sinful actions committed by him. That even though he hadn't done a single thing wrong, uh, he was put to death for our transgressions. I think that's that's like a something that's very easy for us to uh, for us as Christians to kind of assume that we know. Like, yeah, no, no, we get it. He was he he never sinned. He was pure. Okay, cool. And we kind of accept that without really thinking through what that means. And and I think a part of that is because we very quickly forget um, what what. It was like for Jesus to, to live his life for those 33 or so years. Um, because sometimes we just chalk it up to the fact that, like, well, yeah, he was perfect. He was Jesus. You know? He was God. So, yeah, of course he was perfect. Of course he was able to resist temptation. Of course he was able to do all those things because he was God. And we're not God. And so, you know, whatever. 
he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man kind of at the same time. And that's one of those just kind of mind-blowing things that we can only understand to a point. So you and I are 100% human. Um, Jesus was 100% God, and then through the incarnation, like when he was born, he became 100% man and 100% God at the same time. But as he lived his life uh, as an act of humility, he, um, he didn't access that divine nature as he walked around. Like, he wasn't walking around and, like, with, like, kind of fluctuating, like, whatevers. And so, like, he wasn't walking around 100% man, 100% God, not accessing the God part, though, kind of walking around. And then whenever something weird would go on, or he was, like, let's take the temptation account in the desert we've been talking about in community group in Luke chapter 4. Satan comes to tempt him. It's not like in those moments he was like, oh, the 100% man part of me is so tempted right now. Let me, let me like bring in the 100% God part to help overwhelm the 100% man part. Or he wasn't like, uh, I think I can kind of handle this one. Let's just go like 58% God right now. That's kind of all that I need. And then it would like go back down or whatever. He wasn't fluctuating. There was this, this act of humility where he didn't access that. That Jesus walked around, and he was as dependent on the Spirit as you and I are in our everyday lives as well. So when he's in the desert, and he's fasted and prayed for 40 days, and Satan comes along, and he's like, hey, those rocks right there look a lot like rolls, don't they? I bet you could just make them turn into rolls, right? Because you're hungry, and bread is awesome, and you really want bread right now. So why don't you just turn those into bread you know, just nobody's here, just you and me, you know, whatever. It wasn't like Jesus was like, oh, let me dig into the divine nature. No, he was relying on the Spirit to say no to that temptation. And all the things that we work through about denial of self, that was him, like, trusting in the abiding power that comes from relying on the guidance of the Father and the empowerment of the Spirit. That's what he did, just like you and I do. And so as he's praying for us and as he continues to intercede for us, he knows what it's like to be in the trenches and to be faced with the kinds of temptations that we face. Hebrews 4.15 says that he's been tempted in every way just like we are, but he was without sin. So he's literally been up against the same battles. Maybe some of the details are different. I get that. All right. He didn't have the internet. All right, okay, that's fine. I understand your, and we're talking about, get down to the core issue there. He's faced it, and he chose over and over and over and over again, over the course of his entire life, he chose to depend on the Spirit and let the Spirit lead him through those things without sinning for his entire life because he needed to go to the cross with no sin He needed to go to the cross having done no violence. Last week we talked about, you know, when in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and you bring a a lamb or, you know, whatever animal, let's say lamb, you bring a lamb, you had to bring the most pure, perfect one to be your sacrifice for your sins. You lay your hand on the head of the animal and your guilt was transferred to the animal and then the animal was killed but it had to be the best possible one. 
It had to be pure. It had to be perfect. It had to be the most, it would be the most costly for you to lose this one. The one that would bring you the highest price at the market. The one whose wool would, would, bring, would, would feed your family for the next six months. You, it had to be sacrificial. It had to be perfect. And so Jesus lived his whole life saying no, saying no, saying no. Denying self, denying his flesh, letting the Spirit lead him and empower him through those things over and over and over again so that he could present himself to God as a perfect sacrifice, having done no violence, that there are no actions that he has committed that were sinful. We can't just chalk that up and be like, oh yeah, well of course, he's Jesus, and just dismiss that as if that's some... some thing that's unattainable for us. He did that for you. He refused to turn the, the stones to bread in the desert out of obedience to the Father and out of his love for you and me. If he had turned those stones to bread, he would have sinned against the Father and he would have sinned, uh, because of his sin against the Father, he would not have been the perfect sacrifice that once for all would cover all of our sins. So did he die for, for God or for you? I say yes. Yes, he did. It's both. The joy set before him is what Hebrews says. The, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What is the joy? Obedience to the Father? Yes. The joy of seeing you and I saved and redeemed and the glory to God that our lives bring as we grow in holiness and godliness? Yes. Adopting us into his family, calling us sons and daughters, yes. Exchanging a heart of stone for a heart of flesh, giving us new identities, yes. Setting us free from the law of sin and death, letting us live in, in freedom and, whole, and wholeness, yes. In eternity together on a new earth, free from all the impact of sin and just all the garbage that that's brought into our lives, yes. I mean, there's this massive list of what the joy set before him looks like and what that means. And all of them point to the glory of God through all that he has created. And so was it worth it to him to quietly take that beating and quietly walk through the streets of Jerusalem and quietly hang up on that cross and not object to the worst that you and I have to offer? Even though everyone out there despised him and rejected him and they couldn't connect those dots and they didn't understand what was going on. Yeah, it was worth it. So yeah, there was no deceit in his mouth. He had done no violence. He was perfect. He was innocent. And it says that there was no deceit in his mouth. That also points inwardly. You know, doing violence, that's action. Deceit, that's, that begins inside. So this verse is saying, look, there were no sinful actions. There were also no sinful intent in him. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to actually strike someone in violence. It's different to kind of want to, you know. And so maybe you've never killed someone, but maybe you've wanted to. And this is saying not only Jesus didn't act on it, he also, like he didn't sin internally either. There was a purity that was there. That he was our sinless substitute. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He knew no sin. We knew only sin. And he became sin for us. So he is that perfect, spotless lamb that you didn't bring and I didn't bring. God himself brought. God brought the lamb. And he was perfect. And we brought the sin. And we transferred it to him. And he didn't say a word. And even though he was perfect and knew no sin, he became sin. And that was transferred. And God put him to death. And Jesus said, it's finished. And God said, yep, it is. And so we get to walk away and we get healing and peace and this new life. All because Jesus is awesome. Jesus is awesome. And for you and I, in our journey, as we're learning to hate our sin, this is what gets it done for us. It's when we lose sight of the beauty of Christ and what He has done. When we forget this, that sin becomes appealing again, and we begin to justify it, and we stop denying self, and start taking shortcuts, start taking control of things, start mis- misapplying the promises and character of God to kind of endorse our own sin, all those, all those things. There's a pastor uh, named C.J. Mahaney, and a, a part of what he talks about is um, how he begins and ends his days. And a part of his process is to think through the gospel. He anticipates his day and thinks through the gospel. And he reviews his day and thinks through the gospel. And so maybe for us, a part of our discipline needs to be kind of reviewing the day and looking at the places where we we turn to our own path and we told Jesus, I know better than you. And we think about that in light of the gospel. And not just, not just the crucifixion part of the gospel, but the entire thing. That for that sin, Jesus quietly went to the cross and died as your perfect substitute. And then God rose him from the dead because he said, it truly is finished. And I am like counting you now free. And so you're free from that sin that happened today. You didn't have to do that. You chose to do it. And there's a whole process within that uh, of God teaching us to, uh, to love him more than we love flesh and all that kind of stuff. But I think too often we, just, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge like, yeah, man, guess what? All day long today I just told Jesus I know better than you. Stay away from me. That I told my Savior, my sinless, perfect Beautiful Savior that he doesn't know what he's talking about, and I'm way smarter than him. 
We don't want to, who wants to have that conversation? Who wants to sit down with your spouse at night and be like, hey, let me tell you what I did today. I just rebelled all day long against the Jesus that I love so, so much. But what's better, to have that conversation or not have that conversation? To sit down with those close to you and let them walk with you through that or to just pretend like that didn't happen? You want to understand grace more deeply? This is part of it. And I believe it's part of what he wants to continue to stir in us and teach us. So, he's not afraid of the worst you have to bring. He already willingly took it upon himself. Let's pray. Actually, let's stand. Let's just pray together and let's let's just spend a minute or, or whatever just just thanking him and making it personal being specific thank him for dying for like the specific things that you battle the specific worst that, that you have in your in your past or, or presently or whatever. Just thank Him. And just apply the gospel to those things and make it personal. Jesus, we thank you for, uh, for your con- the continual denial of self that happened over the course of your entire life. As you relied on the Spirit to strengthen you and empower you and guide you, we thank you for continually choosing over and over and over again to obey the Father and to walk in holiness. And for your willingness to, um, to step in as our perfect, sinless sacrifice. The only one worthy, the only one who had earned the right to step in and once for all cover sin and death and free us. We thank you that you didn't object, that you... You had every right to scream out and refuse, but you didn't because of the joy, the many joys set before you. And in the most unfair thing that's ever happened, you took all that upon yourself and we get to walk in freedom and healing and peace. And we thank you that it's not about fairness. It's about love and grace and obedience to a plan that is greater and deeper than anything we we will ever see or know. 
We thank you for the fact that it's real to us and that you made sure we would have chapters like Isaiah 53 all these years later to learn and to study and to, to hear you speak through. And now as we sing, just pray that you'd help us to respond to the things you've stirred in us.